Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. There's a constant battle between influencing and informing audiences to elicit a specific response. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Benjamin George discussing the use of information during the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Benjamin George, and he'll be discussing the use of information during the American Revolution. There's been a lot of research lately on George Washington's use of spies during the war. There's also been a good amount of research on the use of propaganda during the war. Both of those things fall into the umbrella term we call information, and there's a lot more to the story than meets the eye. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Benjamin George. Benjamin George, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity for being here. Ben, you're a first-time guest. Tell us about your background. Um, Well, I was an active-duty Marine for 21 years. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps in, uh, I enlisted in the Marine Corps actually in 2001, uh, June. Uh, so I, I was a pre 9-11 Marine. Um, but my, my first eight years were spent um, enlisted as a public affairs specialist. And then I transitioned to be a Marine security guard um, serving at uh, three different embassies um, uh, for the Marine Corps and Department of State. Uh, then I went through a commissioning program uh, at Penn State University. Uh, I earned my MA in English there, uh, and I got my commission as an officer. Uh, and then I spent the next 13 years as an intelligence officer, um, various uh, different duties um, around the world. Um, but, um, you know, during that time, uh, I had the opportunity to take a, a military history literature review. Uh, at one of my intermediate training programs, and that's what really um, connected all the dots for me to pursue a a graduate degree in history. And, you know, um, that's why I'm continuing to do um, some research and and writing on future topics. What first drew your interest into this topic? In the final years of my active duty service, I worked for the Deputy Commandant for Information at Headquarters Marine Corps. Uh, We worked out of the Pentagon in Arlington. Uh, The final project I worked on over the course of, I'd say, two years, um, it it was the development uh, and writing. I was part of the team. We were building a doctrinal publication on information as a warfighting function. And in short, we were really trying to distill these philosophical and academic ideas about information use 
information processing, modern technology, uh, to make them usable and functional for Marines at the tactical level. The end result of that effort was a piece of doctrine called Marine Corps Doctrinal Publication on Information. Uh, and that's been released to the entire Marine Corps. And it's, it's helping to institutionalize how the Marine Corps uses information functionally from the strategic to the tactical level. That project coincided with my time at George Washington University when I was pursuing my MA in American history. And the research for this essay really began in my final semester there when I had the opportunity to work with uh, Dr. Denver Brunsman, who teaches a course at Mount Vernon called George Washington and His World. It's a really unique opportunity where you know, a small number of, of students, undergraduate and a few graduate students get to basically hold class at Mount Vernon once a week. And, you know, we sort of analyze and read various aspects of not just George Washington, but um, his life. And the, the final project for that, I really wanted to marry together what I was doing in my in my full time career with what I was doing in grad school at the time. And, and this is sort of the end result of that. Ben, what is the role of information during a war? I think the role of information in conflict is, is really dependent on the actor. Um, in, in any conflict, I think there are many different groups and individuals who are pursuing ends that don't necessarily align or overlap um, and that's to say nothing of the main combatants and their competing interests, but it's more than just the belligerents. It's, you know, the populations that are adjacent to the belligerents. So I think the purpose behind different types of information um, varies depending on whose perspective you choose to analyze. So for the likes of, say, George Washington and William Howe, um, there's information related to troop strength movements, resupply schedules, tactical considerations that we've come to identify as sort of components of military intelligence. You know, when that information is analyzed and synthesized into an understanding of the military situation and it's used to make decisions, we consider that intelligence. But I think um, the Revolutionary War is a great example of how war involves more than just armies competing on battlefields. And one book that was really influential in how I view that and, and that I revisit quite often is John Shy's uh, People Numerous and Armed, because I think he shows effectively um, the political, the military, and the social aspects of the conflict. You know, along with the, the Continental Army and the British military, there were colonial militias, there were non-combatant loyalists, there were non-combatant anti-loyalists, uh, a, a number of Native populations, and in some cases there were, there were individualists and opportunists who all sought different outcomes. And they produced and consumed information in different forms with differing messages. And, you know, for the political noncombatants like the Continental Congress, 
British Parliament. They produced information um, because they sought to bolster their political ends, whether it was independence or conflict resolution, respectively. And, you know, their audiences included those directly involved in or, or witness to the conflicts on both sides of the Atlantic. So I think, you know, if, if you ask the role of information, it depends on who the user is, who the audience is. And that's what I, I hope at least this essay helps to illuminate is that information it can be another weapon or a tool to pursue one's objectives in conflict. Is it safe to call all information propaganda? Yeah, I think I think there's some nuance there. I think information is a component of propaganda, but I don't think the two terms are synonymous. Propaganda I view as a it's a type of communication that's really meant to influence an audience toward a preferred um, action, emotional response, or to support a specific agenda. I think propaganda can start with facts, but, you know, the delivery of those facts, how those facts are represented, um, usually do not contain objectivity in their delivery. And I think that makes it an evocative form of communication. And, you know, to that end, there were propagandists on both sides of the conflict. And, and Daniel Adams stands out from the, uh, American revolutionary side. I think language is, is one of a propagandist most trusted tools. Um, and Adams was one of the leading forces behind, you know, framing the, the so-called Boston massacre as a massacre. Um, he capitalized on growing anti-British sentiment by presenting the incident as the, the sort of like this deliberate plot and, you know, through language and argumentation, he generated or sort of like amplified, if you will, like anti-British fervor uh, among the population. And, you know, in the modern military approach to information, there's a term of art called information advantage. And I think in simplest terms, it's the pursuit of an operational advantage by using information to support your own decision-making, disrupt your adversary's ability to make decisions, and to influence non-adversaries to behave or make decisions that support your own efforts in some way. But I think if we take a broad view of the conflict and all the ways in which information is transmitted, you know, from all actors to all types of audiences, Propaganda is just one component of that, even though there are many different types of information that are that are moving about, not just the battle space, but in political circles, uh, in social contexts. Um, those attempts to influence actors and audiences are in constant conflict with attempts to inform or counter-influence those same actors and audiences. And I think that's the difference between, you know, propaganda and, and information more generally. Ben, why was British disinformation so harmful to the Continental Army? Yeah, I think, I think British disinformation had the potential to be more effective and more harmful because they were 
the existing power structure, you know, the established authority. And I think the challenge for uh, American revolutionaries was, in essence, spurring masses to action. Uh, um, back to, you know, John Shy, one of his essays in A People Numerous and Armed is titled Hearts and Minds in the American Revolution. And he, he tells the story of a, of a revolutionary fighter called Long Bill Scott. And he sort of represents, you know, what, what maybe many might have as this archetype of uh, the engaged colonial fighting for independence from the beginning to the end of the war. But I think Shai's uh, point in the essay is that, um, you know, this archetype is actually an outlier. Long Bill Scott was an outlier. Uh, those who did much of the actual fighting were from a large and growing number of, of poor people whose terms of service, either in militias or, or in the Continental Army itself, were often much shorter and very often intermittent um, or just one-offs. So when your force is made up of part-time unprofessional soldiers, you know, building cohesion, maintaining momentum, uh, not just on the battlefield, but political momentum to, to garner support uh, for those who are fighting, uh, those are significant challenges. And I think those objectives were regularly challenged through British disinformation efforts. How could we characterize George Washington's response to the information war? Uh, For me, I think the word I would choose for Washington's approach is measured. Um, An an incident that really stands out uh, is his response to discovering the Continental Army's gunpowder shortage shortly after he took command of the Continental Army in 1775. There's a really great essay on this incident on the um, JAR website that dispels some myths about Washington's response to finding out that information. But if I could recap briefly, um, once he took command of the Army, he inquired about the gunpowder inventory. And it was originally reported to him that there were more than 300 barrels of powder. um, But that total was soon amended to reflect um, in reality that only a fraction of that number remained in the Army's stores. And the, the original number that was quoted to him was, in fact, you know, all of the ammunition that had been collected over time and not a reflection of what they had on hand um, at the time. And one of one of the Army's generals wrote that Washington was, was so struck by the news he didn't utter a word for half an hour. Well, after that half hour uh, of, let's call it, you know, reflection, uh, orders were quickly passed for operations against known powder stores in uh, Halifax and Bermuda. And But the issue of the current shortage was still there. It was still present. It was a real vulnerability Uh, And that vulnerability could turn into a very real threat if that information made its way, uh, you know, to British ears. So Washington's response to that was to keep the secret even from his own forces. And a few days later in his general orders, um, 
he he wrote, you know, that that despite repeated attempts to prevent the firing of weapons by soldiers um, who had little chance or probability of hurting the enemy, that soldiers continued to waste their ammunition. Uh, well, without you know, announcing to his own forces that there was a shortage of gunpowder, the message was was pretty clear and succinct. Don't fire unless necessary. So along with, you know, hopefully instilling some weapons discipline in in the in the in his troops at the front lines and, and, and throughout the message of hiding the true reason for the order uh, was there. So that, you know, even in issuing orders to his own troops, there was no danger of, of, uh, of the enemy finding out the, the shortage of, of gunpowder. And I think, uh, you know, the incident with, uh, Penuel Cheney, um, that was, a that was another measured response. Um, you know, not all information vulnerabilities were up to the commander in chief himself to reconcile. Uh, and, one of his letters to the governor of Connecticut. Um, if I can quote him from his correspondence, he says, as it is now apparent, we have nothing to depend on in the present contest, but our own strength, care, firmness, and union. Should not the same measures be adopted in yours and every other government on the continent? End quote. Yeah, I think he recognized that information threats or the sustainability of the revolutionary idea was under constant attack. And it wasn't just a military problem. Uh, it was a political and a social problem as well. And I think his, his responses, I, as I said, I would call measured and, and, and pretty circumspect. Ben, who was Penuel Cheney? Yeah, I've, I found this episode very interesting um, because I felt it was, it was indicative of a, of a different kind of actor in the war. And I, I would use the term opportunist. Um, according to the, the Cheney family geology, Penuel Cheney was born in 1748 in Wyndham, Connecticut. And down the line, he became a surgeon. And following the Battle of Lexington, he became a surgeon's mate in the 3rd Connecticut Regiment and he served at Cambridge through 1775. And the reason I consider Cheney a bit of an opportunist is because of what's revealed about his service through Washington's correspondence and, and general orders um, regarding Cheney's behavior. Uh, he's reported to have made, quote, fraudulent drafts upon the commissary's stores, likely through his position as a surgeon's mate, along with other malpractices. And for these actions, he was set to face a board of inquiry. Now, before that board could happen, Cheney wrote Washington directly, and he requested a discharge from his regiment before being forced to answer any questions regarding his supposed offensive. And one month later, after being granted his discharge, he was reappointed as the surgeon for the same regiment. Once uh, George Washington was informed of Cheney's reappointment, he wrote again to John Trumbull, the, the governor of Connecticut, to inform him of Cheney's previous history while serving in the Connecticut militia, as well as 
reports of Cheney slander of general officers who were fighting uh, for the American cause. In short, Washington ordered Cheney arrested, and Cheney was eventually court-martialed. I think the evidence, or the incident is evidence that not all information threats were external. And, you know, military readiness, um, operational efficiency, logistical support, or what Washington called that confidence which ought to subsist between troops and their officers, all of that could easily be eroded through the spread of information or views that were detrimental to the revolutionary cause. And that's why I believe, you know, the Penuel Cheney incident is, um, is a significant one because information threats can, can exist inside friendly lines as well. How did the information war affect the war with Native Americans? There was a there was a battle for influence among the native populations between the British and, and the American revolutionaries. And if they couldn't get direct military support um, in the form of allies from native tribes, at the very least, I think both sides were hoping for neutrality. Uh, and as it happened, um, many tribes decided to forego neutrality and many uh, ended up fighting on the side of the British. At least many more ended up fighting on the side of the British than uh, for the revolutionary side. And I, I, I believe native populations had as much at stake during the war as both the American side and the British side. And when I think about the effect of the information war on native Americans, I think the biggest impact um, was after the war with Britain. Um, you know, pre-existing colonial fears of Native Americans, especially in backcountry areas, uh, were amplified when many of these tribes uh, decided to support and fight on behalf of the British war effort. And the information war plays into this because propaganda from the American side I think further emboldened anti-Native sentiments and, and probably helped justify, at least in the minds of many, you know, westward expansion um, further into Native territories after the war. Ben, how would you say the information war affected the war as a whole? I, I wouldn't argue that <clears throat> the information war had any type of primacy uh, in the conduct of the Revolutionary War, but I, I do believe it was a significant component of the conflict. And, you know, whether it was at the so-called tactical level, uh, you know, in town congregations or meeting houses, or whether it was at the strategic level where generals were meeting with sachems trying to gain allies or, or diplomats lobbying for French support, the information war uh, was fought on a daily basis, and necessarily so, because I don't believe the preeminent military power of the time uh, could have been defeated or forced to relinquish without first having the belief that it could be done. And that belief comes from a mixture of, you know, success on the battlefield and messaging that capitalizes on those successes 
or at the very least minimizing fears when realizing setbacks on the battlefield or in the face of propaganda. Uh, the information war was important because the ideas were, were at the very least as powerful as, as the musket balls uh, between belligerents. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Yeah, I will, I will definitely make no, no grand claims about this essay, but what I, what I came to appreciate during the research for this article is the nature of how information was passed then uh, compared with, you know, modern military challenges of information. Uh, everyone at the time, as today, has to make decisions based on whether they believe the information they are receiving is accurate, truthful, believable from a trusted source. The revolutionary era may have had fewer sources of information, um, and while that's true, there were still ideas in competition. Everyone had to make decisions on what they believed to be true, and as far as modern information warfare is concerned, I believe that while the technology has changed the way we receive and process information, the variety of information threats and vulnerabilities are sort of consistent. Um, there's a constant battle between influencing and informing audiences or actors to elicit a specific response. I state in the essay that information warfare is an anachronism for the uh, revolutionary era. But I think, you know, fighting for those ideas and fighting for the primacy of those ideas uh, was very real, uh, and I think it comes across in the many different ways that um, are evidenced in this article about how George Washington fought some of those information threats. Um, so that's, I, I think that's what helps us uh, understand the, the air better. Benjamin George, thanks again. Thanks a lot for having me. I had a good time. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.